My name is Lisa Moore, and this is State of the Arts. State of the Arts at Memorial Humanities and Social Sciences. Analysis whip smart and professorial smart. People talk about what they know best. Listen to Lisa as she brings them all together, and we try to figure out how to live together better with fat stacks of research. Found to impress, so let's talk about the faculty of HSS. Welcome to State of the Arts, a podcast exploring the humanities and social sciences, broadcasting from Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. I'm Lisa Moore, and I'm a writer, visual artist, and an associate professor in Memorial's English department. I talk to faculty members about the critical role of their work in understanding our changing world and the practices of living together well. Hi everyone and welcome to State of the Arts. This is a show about exploring the humanities and social sciences here at Memorial University in Newfoundland. We chat with a variety of faculty members about their work and how the issues addressed through their teaching and research are critical to our understanding of the changing world. My name is Lisa Moore and I'm a writer, visual artist and professor and in Memorial's English department. And today I'm very pleased to introduce our guest, Professor of History, Dr. John Sandlos. John's research incorporates broad themes from the field of environmental history, and most recently, the impact of northern mining and toxins on indigenous communities. John grew up in a suburb of Vancouver and Toronto and holds a PhD and a Master's of Environmental Studies from York University and a BA from McGill. And he came to Newfoundland in 2007. In addition to his roles as teacher and researcher, he is also the director of the Nexus Center for Humanities and Social Science Research. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Um, did you like your painting? <laughs> I did like the painting, yes. And I liked how young you made me look. Well, look at you, though. <laughs> you're, getting you're, a real, baby. you're getting the real me now, right? <laughs> this is the real you. Yeah. Um, so I want to start by asking you about uh, what got you interested in the legacy of North, northern mining projects? Well, years ago in the late 1990s, I went up north and I lived in a small community called Fort Resolution in the Northwest Territories on the south shore of Great Slave Lake. And I actually was following my spouse. She was teaching high school up there, but I did get a job teaching adult education. Um, and the students were doing a small assignment on the history of their community. And one of the students, um, wanted to do something on the Pine Point Mine. And I had no idea what that was at the time, but it was a large lead zinc mine that started operating in the 1960s. And the community, to make a long story short, really felt like they got a raw deal. They got an environmental mess left behind and they didn't get a lot of jobs out of it. Um, you know, there are people in the community that have a more positive view, but this student wrote a, a kind of scathing assignment about it. And then he offered to take me out to the mine and I was shocked and stunned that there was over, well over 40, almost 45 uh, large open pits on the south shore of the lake, old roads that haven't been covered over. Um, the pits had filled with water. It was quite a spectacular sight. Um, and my spouse and I actually wrote a, a magazine article about it for the Beaver, which was the old, uh, which is now Canada's history magazine. And then it kind of lay in, in abeyance for a while, I guess. I, I didn't really 
think too much about it. Um, and I, I started doing my PhD. I got interested in northern wildlife issues. I came to a memorial. I met Arne Keeling and we kind of sat down and had a beer and we talked about what kind of projects we would do together. He was working on Uranium City, which is another old, uh, um, old mining town in northern Saskatchewan. And we thought we should do a project and we've been working on the issue for over 10 years now of northern mining. So this, be, this all began then out of an adult basic education class? Yep. The student taught me something and I, I kind of took it and, and ran with it. And uh, we did go back and do research in that community. So that was great to meet everybody again. And, and we did a lot of oral history interviews and the community was really enthusiastic about that research. They have transcripts of all the interviews. We did a video online about, about the Pine Point Mine and, and uh, I think it was a really great project. I think that's a fantastic story about education and that, you know, I, I often think that reading and writing are simply vessels for, for people's stories and, and the stories are there and it's just a matter of giving people access to the ways of telling them in some ways. Yeah, I, I think so too and I think that's something maybe we've offered some of the communities who've worked with us in the, in the North as a kind of a conduit or a vehicle to tell their stories about their experiences with northern mining. And I think for a lot of those communities, it's important to get that out. What, what was their experience and how, what was the encounter with modern mining like in remote locations um, when they weren't always consulted about the projects or always intimately involved with it? So can you tell me what a zombie mine is? A zombie mine, it is, I can tell you what it's not from our perspective, and that is it's not a mine that's haunted with zombies, right? So um, if you look online, there was an old Canadian film that was about a mine that was haunted with zombies, and there's several video games on that theme, but we don't use the term in that way. We, um, we kind of came up with the term, and another American historian, Tracy Bryn Voiles, has used the term as well, sort of, we guess came up the, with the idea independently, given the zeitgeist of the early 2000s, zombies were everywhere. It's basically a mine that has an afterlife and exerts a kind of malevolent influence on the environment and people around it after it's closed. So we think of a mine, it opens, it has a life, um, it operates, and then it closes. And we think of an abandoned mine as just something that's left behind. But uh, what we found in doing our research is that the past is never the past when it comes to abandoned mines. There are often intense pollution problems. It can be uh, pollution problems on the surface or pollution underground. That pollution can be uh, water. It can be dust that blows from the mine. There's also landscape changes that uh, lots of people who live around these mines think, well, why can't the mine go back to the way, or why can't the land go back to the way it was? Um, and so the, and then often these mines are undergoing remediation programs, which sound clean and green, and, and they are, it is, those kinds of remediation programs are important, but they also introduce new risk for communities around the mine. So if you've got contaminated soil and you start moving that soil uh, or removing that soil, well, that raises the potential that you might release more toxins into the air, into the water, and the, and, the, and the other thing about that is that many of these mines often, as mineral prices fluctuate, they go up, they go down. As they go up, sometimes abandoned mines are subject to redevelopment projects. So people want to go in, they want to reprocess old tailings and pull gold or, or silver or copper or nickel out of them. Or they want to do new mining in old deposits that are now economic. Um, and, and sometimes these zombie mines undergo remediation 
and redevelopment all at the same time. So we think of this as kind of the afterlife of mining. And for a lot of the communities around the mines, the influencers are often malevolent. So it seemed like the zombie was the perfect metaphor to use to describe these mines. It is, it's a great metaphor. And of course, the, the people around the Yellowknife mine, the great mine. The giant mine. The yes. giant mine. Yes. Um, they, they talk about it as, as a monster, don't they? Yes, and I think Giant Mine is probably the zombie mine uh, that sits at, the, uh, it's kind of the, the, the big kahuna of all the zombie mines. It, it, and it is arguably the worst toxic site in Canada right now. So to just explain to the viewers, um, that, that was a, a gold mine that where mining started in 1948. Um, and in 1949, the, gold, the company at that time, uh, started roasting the ore. It was the only way to get at the gold within the ore. And the byproduct of that was arsenic trioxide, which was spewed out into the surrounding atmosphere with um, very uh, ill effects uh, imposed on the local indigenous population because the arsenic would settle in snow and they were using that snow melt for water in the winter. So they, there's a whole history of that community being poisoned, being made sick, at least one child, maybe more uh, people were killed by that pollution. In 1951, there was a boy, a young boy who died, and the government, the company felt like they needed to respond to this. Um, and so they started to use pollution control equipment to collect the arsenic trioxide dust that was coming up the stack. And they didn't really know what to do with it. Um, there's another mine in the area, Con Mine, where the the arsenic had been stored in lakes and holding ponds, and there was problems with surface water pollution. So uh, they didn't want to store it on the surface, and they started putting this stuff in what a, uh, they use what they call the dry storage method, putting it underground. Um, and now there's 237,000 tons of highly toxic material underground. It only takes a teaspoon to kill an individual. Um, and the water table in a mine always, you know, that, that you are always, usually in an underground mine, you're pumping water out so that you can get at the chambers. In this case, if that pumping were to stop, the water would come up, that material, the, the arsenic is soluble, it would dissolve in the water and get into the surrounding environment. So it's a zombie mine because there's this immense amount of toxic material that is definitely a threat to the local population and the surrounding area. And the government has uh, their solution, the remediation solution has been to freeze this stuff until we can figure out what to do with it, how to remove it safely and, and so on. So there's this massive, expensive underground freeze operation going on simultaneously with a surface cleanup. Yes, I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrifying. And you and, and your collaborator, Arn, did a documentary. Um, the documentary is called Guardians of Eternity. Yes. I think we're going to see a clip of um, a, a woman. Mary Rose Sundberg. And she's talking about when, when people first came yes. to the area, white people. Mm -hmm. Our word for non-Dene people, the white people, we call them Kwe-Ti. Kwe is rock. E is people. So the white people's name came when the first prospector came because we remember them as a person that was looking, that wanted the rock. So they remember them as the Kweti. So they're called rock people to this day. So, so they, they came for rock mm -hmm. and can you 
just tell us how long they came, the expense, the ex what, how much money they made with this gold. And let's keep in mind too, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that gold is not like other uh, resource extraction in that it doesn't have uh, the kind of uh, value that energy uh, resource might, an energy resource might have, or even, um, you know, there, it has no use really. Yeah. It, or very little. It, 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 very, there are some uses for gold, um, and certainly they're used as, it's used in an ornamental sense. But the gold from Giant Mine went to the Canadian Mint. It was, it was just simply formed into bricks and went to the Canadian Mint as, as you know, part of when people used to use the gold standard, and gold was a stabilizing form of wealth for, for central banks and so on. Um, and I, I, when people, I think, you know, what's important about Mary Rose's quote is that I think for indigenous people in the area, the wealth, the immense wealth, as you say, the millions upon millions of dollars in gold that was pulled out of the land, for them, they see it as a kind of a theft. Um, and this is the central moment for them in the what they see as the colonization of their, their territory. Their land was turned into a toxic waste dump. All this wealth was pulled out and they have a counter story. So the rock people came, prospectors like Johnny Baker, but the Dene feel that one of their own, Liza Crooked Hand, and there are other stories around, actually showed the prospectors where the gold was. So it was indigenous knowledge that led the rock people to the gold. And all Liza Crooked Hand got out of that was a stovepipe. And, I, and those stories, I think, underline the extent to which um, indigenous people felt left out of the development process and that wealth was taken for their land, that they didn't, they didn't have any part in, in benefiting from that and, and all they got was really the harms from that mining. And I think they weren't really included in the labor force either, were they? A little bit. Some people were, but um, at that time, no, there was no training, um, uh, no, no attempt to develop anything like an indigenous employment policy, no impact or benefit agreements um, as we would see today with northern mining. So as we see, uh, as, as indigenous people of the Dene around that mine began to get sick, mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about how uh, you know, the environmental impacts were being studied and was there a suppression of that information? How did that work? Uh, that, that's a really great question. There were different studies done. Um, there were public health studies done in the 50s, right after the initial incident with the community, widespread illness in the community. And I've only seen retrospective references to that study. I've never been able to locate it. Um, and the, and the subject kind of, I guess, with the pollution control uh, being put in place, it, it, it kind of died out a little bit. There was monitoring going on, monitoring mostly of drinking water. But the issue came to the forefront again when there was another study done in the late 60s. And um, it's really interesting because the issue kind of blows up by the mid-70s. Um, there's a few reasons for this. First of all, this is the era, pollution's on everybody's mind in the 70s in North America. It's the era of pollution activism and lots of stories about pollution in the news. The second thing was is that the, really, the, the story really hit the media in 1974 um, around the Watergate era. And what's interesting is this study that was done in the 1960s, the rumor was that it showed that people were getting cancer from arsenic in the environment. And, and uh, organizations like the Indian Brotherhood of the Northwest Territories were requesting this study. Um, go local government was requesting study. 
I, I think from the, I don't think there was an active suppression effort. I actually think nobody could find it in the government for the longest time. I have a copy, I have a digital copy now and it's available in the archives, but I think nobody really knew where the study was. The doctor who was the lead of the study was very uncommunicative with the government. But, it, but what came out in the news, there were a lot of reports on, on CBC and particularly an episode of As It Happens, where basically the idea came forth that this was a cover-up, that there had been cancer Yay, being caused CBC. in the community. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and um, there was a, a huge raft of activism. The Indian Brotherhood was conducting hair studies within the Yellowknife's Dene community. They were, there was kind of this, almost like this science battle where uh, local unions, and indigenous groups were claiming their studies were showing that people had elevated arsenic levels and the government conducted studies where they were saying, no, no, we're all at safe levels um, and so on. Um, it, it, this kind of got resolved when the Canadian Public Health Association came in and did a broad ranging study. They concluded that levels were safe within the community. I mean, we can look back retrospectively and say, we now understand there's really no safe level for exposure for, to arsenic trioxide. It's one of those substances that causes, over prolonged periods can cause cancer at very low dose rates. Um, and so even today, as part of the remediation, the community requested and got a, a, a broad scale health study on health impacts today. I helped them a little bit with uh, locating some archival documents, but. I haven't seen the results from that study yet. The story eerily mirrors, I, I would say, the Muskrat Falls uh, research and, and the suggestion that, you know, the um, methylmercury there is not dangerous. And then the Harvard uh, study, which said that it was. And in Belize, you know, the same company built a, a hydroelectric dam, uh, which Stan Marshall was the CEO for. And there they are calling for help to do research as well. Um, it seems to be an old story about yeah. development, uh, industrial development around sites that are out of our sight, mm -hmm. you know, off in the north that we can easily close our eyes to and turn our backs on. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think the remoteness of the north, I mean, it's, it's the very, I, I, again, I go back to colonialism as a, as, a, as a context, right? The idea of terra nullius, right? That this is empty land and, you know, certain economic interests and interests of the government, they assume that they can go and do whatever they want. Now, that being said, we do today have much more extensive consultation processes in place. We read about this in the news, the desire for free prior and informed consent, which nobody truly knows what that means yet. Um, there are better processes in place, but I do think at the end of the day, when it comes to assessing these kinds of projects, that often the, the there, there are projects that have been stopped by local communities, but I think Muskrat Falls is a great example. I mean, mercury is another one of those substances that's just not safe at any level. You and see the grassy narrows yeah, that you talk about in your research. Yeah, and, I, and I, I, think, I think there's no question in my mind that indigenous concerns about a very important lake on their landscape being turned into a mercury puddle effectively got ignored. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's interesting. You you work with Arn, Arn Keeling. Yes, in geography, yes. And um, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm wondering, like, if, if students are watching this, if, if they're aware of just how much collaboration goes on in a university. And I know that in some of these projects, you're working with sociologists, anthropologists, 
elders, um, political scientists, it's, it, you're a historian. All these people are working together to explore sites basically for social justice. Yeah, and, and there's been, it's been great to have that level of collaboration. I mean, I think there's the practical side of it, like when you get really busy, somebody else on your team is, is picking up the slack. They're, they're maybe a little less busy, and that always feels good. Um, there's the energy you get from feeding off other people's mm -hmm. energy rather than working in isolation. But I think the most important thing is getting people to look at pr problems from different angles. So the, the historical context that I would bring to a project is really different than what a geographer who might be working on contemporary impact and benefits agreements might bring, or a scientist, and, and so on. And those interdisciplinary perspectives get us out of our silos and getting us thinking across different types of knowledge. Uh, and then there, for this project, there are also, I mean, I think with the Yellowknife work in particular, we had incredible buy-in and involvement from the community. Uh, it was incredible that they, if you look online at toxiclegacies.ca at our project site, you can see all, the, all the, the reports we did in collaboration with the community. I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked about is, is, is in this project, because the, freeze, uh, the freezing of the arsenic underground is potentially going to be there for a very long time, hopefully only 100 years, but we don't know for sure, we worked very closely with uh, Yellowknife's Denny and other members of the community in, in Yellowknife um, on how we would communicate with future generations about the dangers of that site, how to maintain that uh, site, how to let people know that water needs to be pumped from the site. So we talked about signs, symbols, monuments, archives, um, different publications we can leave behind. We talked about doing ceremonies at the site so people wouldn't forget about it. And, and again, the, the work with those people was incredible. So people in communities have knowledge, people like Mary Rose Sundberg, people like Kevin O'Reilly, who was also in our film and has been active on the Giant Mind file for 25 years now. They're local heroes, in my view, because they are on the front lines of these issues and, and they are fighting for the public interest and making sure these places get managed properly. Yeah, it's a terrifying thing uh, that perhaps this arsenic, and I think uh, Mary Rose says that um, it's 10 stories high and how many buildings or how does she? I, uh, the building, the, the, some of the chambers are as large as a five-story uh, building. Um, the, local, the local word on the street was that, is that there's enough arsenic uh, to poison everybody on the planet four times. So I just I just got a calculator out one day and I divided a teaspoon, you know, whatever it is, 60 milligrams or whatever, into, you know, 270,000 ton, metric tons. And then, you know, you bring in the population of the world. And yes, indeed, it was roughly four t enough poison for everybody in the world to be killed four times over. And, yeah. and when, when do people lose interest in, in that mine and, and, and keeping that stuff contained and, and what happens to it? Yeah, it, well, it, it's yeah. A, it's if, a powerful story. Yeah, if there was ever a loss of, of continuity in the management of the site and the freeze walls were to break down underground, it would take about 20 years for them to melt. But if there's no water pumping, then all bets are off. I don't think anybody truly, so, you know, again, water table comes up, arsenic starts to be dissolved, and then it's working its way out into Great Slave Lake, which flows into the Mackenzie River. And who knows, you know, there would obviously be a dilution effect, but who knows how that toxic material would move, who would it affect. 
And, and if people have forgotten about it, it's silent, it's tasteless, it's odorless, nobody would know it's there. So we all die quietly. <laughs> <laughs> well, or people in the local area would, would, would potentially be getting ill from it, yeah, at the very least. And um, what are you working on now? I know you're doing some work with the barren ground caribou. I, I have been revisiting the caribou issue over the years. Um, I wrote a book, Hunters at the Margin, many, many years ago about um, how wildlife management was used as a kind of colonial tool, as a way of managing indigenous people. And one of the central events I talked about was the caribou crisis of the 1950s. Well, we're in another caribou crisis now. And what's interesting about that is that um, there are some governments, territorial, provincial, some elements in the federal government who still fall back on pointing to the indigenous harvest as the problem. And some research that uh, um, anthropologist Brenda Parley did out at, uh, at University of Alberta, I mean, she has a lot of data that shows indigenous communities do adjust their harvest when caribou rates go down. They do promote conservation. They do, you know, uh, uh, the, those kinds of um, community management protocols are in place. What the role I played in that research was basically to point out that um, there have been an awful lot of environmental assessments done of diamond mines and so on, where the, the assumption is that there is gonna be some impact on the caribou population, but nobody really knows what that is. And so I think the conclusion we came to is that nobody's really asking about the impact of development on the barren grounds in relation to caribou. Now. Again, caribou numbers are declining in places where there's not development as well, but one of the most extreme declines is the Bathurst caribou herd where all the diamond mines have been put in place uh, in the Northwest Territories. And, and I, I think a lot, uh, there's a community called Lutzelke that is, has been very reliant on the Bathurst caribou herd for decade upon decade. And they put out a community report that said they see a lot of crippling loss due to caribou getting the, having their legs caught in, in in uh, gravel that's used to build big ice roads on the tundra and so on. And, and so they, they feel like there's been an impact. And, and right now, nobody knows what that impact has been. Um, there's also climate change to worry about. So I think right now, people are very worried about the status of northern caribou for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the uh, Eagle Ridge gold mine that is um, it's going to be built, there's already an 11-kilometer road yeah. here on the Avalon. And I know people are, there's beginning to be a great deal of worry, fear, and resistance, I guess. What yeah. are your thoughts about that? That's a gold mine, right? Well, I think people are, are right to be worried and raise concerns because ideally in a democracy, citizens get to raise concerns about these kinds of resource projects and, and have input. At this point... We don't know if there's going to be a mine. We, sh we should state that at the outset. There is the road that has been, has, uh, which is an exploration road, and we don't know what the company's going to find. There's a couple things I would say about this, um, maybe three things. First, I would say that exploration has a lot more environmental impacts than people realize, and often it's not subject to any kind of environmental assessment. So there was an environmental review done of the road, and it covered things like making sure streams would flow through culverts underneath. But to the best of my knowledge, um, you know, usually impacts like bl blasting, drilling, trenching, and, and if the exploration gets to an advanced stage, we can be into a, a situation where the company would be bulk sampling, which is essentially doing mining. 
Um, so that's the first thing is that exploration, even if there isn't a mine, can have a lot of environmental impacts and, and those impacts might, may or may not be cleaned up. I, I can't say for sure. Um, the second thing is that this is in an area, it's, it's right close to the Avalon Wilderness Preserve. It's on the border of a provincial park, the Salmonier Nature Park. So any of those kind of environmental impacts that happen outside of parks can potentially have an impact inside of parks as water carries, you know, it can affect water flow, there could be pollution, there could be impacts on wildlife populations on the broader landscape. And that would need to be considered as part of any mining development. And the, and the third thing is, is that the Salmonier Line area is a very popular recreation area. Um, people have cabins out there, people fish out there, they hunt out there. And uh, you got to ask yourself, I mean, if there was a mine proposal for Musco the Muskoka region in Ontario, would, they, would, would government actually approve a mine in there? I, I don't, can't say for sure, but I, would, I can say for sure that people would kick up a fuss about it. And I think that that's part of what's going on here is people value that land for a different land use than development. And so we'll have to watch and see how it turns out. And if there is a mine proposal, I think people will need to scrutinize it very, very carefully. Thank you. I want to just end by asking you, John, I know uh, you do, you kayak with your family of mm -hmm. children, you're, you're out in nature with your children. Um, do you think that is an important experience in terms of bringing children to an awareness about, about nature? Yes, I do. Um, I mean, you're always battling against screens and, and other kinds of distractions, which are admittedly fun as well. Um, <laughs> I, I, do, I do wish that um, children had more kind of hands-on experience in the outdoor world as part of their education. I mean, I think we are kind of robbing them of a vital part of what it means to be human, to be locking them up in schools every day and, and not letting them outside. And, and, uh, and, and, and on a very philosophical level, I, I, one of the things I'm really glad about with my kids is, and one of the great things about moving here and coming to Memorial is that they have had very close encounters with caribou, with moose. I mean, we do canoe trips where we paddled up within 30 meters of, of a caribou. We were kayaking last May long weekend and, and two whales came up by the, the kayaks. And I remember my eldest son, you know, awe, kind of awe and fear. He's like, what do we do? And I'm like, there's nothing we can do, right? <laughs> like, it's, they're just a whale, like, really close to us. And that's we're just gonna have to sit here and see what happens. And, and both the whales kind of breached, the tails came up, and they, everybody was just totally gassed about that. And uh, so I like to think those experiences will have a profound influence on them that they won't forget them. Because I think as human beings, we're hungry for that contact with the other, with animals, with that which is not us. There's lots of philosophers that talk about how we can't be fully human unless we have that strong relationship with the non-human world. And so I've, I've really appreciated the chance to show that to my kids. And I can't say how, you know, where that's going to take them in life, but I'm just glad that they've been able to do that. Well, me too. Thank you. Yeah. Th and thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I feel very excited about the fact that in a university, people can talk about these things. We have um, you know, academic freedom, and so we can explore things that are sometimes difficult to say. Yeah, and and so yeah, thank you for having me. It's it's been important for me to to exercise that freedom and and really try to push knowledge in the direction of serving the public interest. So thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Um,
This has been a wonderful conversation, and uh, we're really grateful to everybody here at, uh, uh, who've helped get this show on the road today. I'm especially grateful to Janet Herron, who is my uh, heroine, heroine. Uh, John Shall Mark Shallow, uh, Paul Hayward, Philip Cairns, uh, ben Smith, Donna Downey, and Gavin Watson. These are the people who have been just such a tremendous help to us. Uh, well, I mean, let's face it, we couldn't be here without them. So totally, totally, totally grateful to all those people. The next State of the Arts will air March 28th, and it is with uh, the English professor Fiona Pollock, and we'll see you there. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to State of the Arts. Visit us online at hss.mun.ca slash stateofthearts for our latest videos and other enhanced content. All our videos can be found as a playlist on Memorial University's YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our podcast by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or the App Store. State of the Arts is supported by Memorial's Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences and the Center for Innovation in Teaching and Learning. State of the Arts at Memorial Humanities and Social Sciences. Analysis whip smart and professorial smart. People talk about what they know best. Listen to Lisa as she brings them all together and we try to figure out how to live together better with fat stacks of research found to impress. So let's talk about the faculty of HSS.